to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read again as we have done now. This will be the sixth weekend of services we've done this. We had one uh, that we missed when we had a guest minister and we just picked it back up. This is number six in the series. And we want to read 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19. For as much as ye know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And verse 20 says, Who verily or truly was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Those two words in verse 19 give us our title of the study we're on, and that is, Precious blood. We're talking about the precious blood of Jesus. Now that may sound very theological to some people. It might sound old-fashioned to others. Some might think it sounds offensive almost to them that that's not a subject they want to hear about. Uh, How is blood precious, by the way, and all of that. But we have been on a journey through scriptures, and we have went down a list of things that this precious blood of Jesus really accomplishes and has accomplished for us. Our list is not complete. There are other things that you could add to it. But today we'll bring us to the last on this particular list at this particular season. We've already, and first of all, learned that through the precious blood of Jesus, our sins were remitted. The debt we owed for our sins that we could not pay, by the way, was paid for us through the life laid down through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Number two, we learned that not only was the sin debt we owed paid, but our sins also have been cleansed from our lives. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We have been cleansed. Verse 21 of the same 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says we've been made the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, if if your mind goes tilt when you hear that, join the crowd. That happened to most of us. But if you renew your mind to Scripture, you find out that's how God sees you. And just a revelation of that truth will make you live different. It'll make you live right. Because you begin to realize who God has actually made you. We've been cleansed from our sins. And then number three on the list, we learned that our conscience has actually been cleansed. That's important because that means we don't have to live with a sense of guilt or fear or shame about our past. Our conscience has been cleansed. Paul told the Corinthians, he said, receive me. I've wronged no man. Well, obviously he was speaking directly to the Corinthian church, but the general statement that Paul had never wronged anybody, how in the world could he make such a statement? Remember, he's the one who held the clothes, coats of those who stoned Stephen to death. He had Christians thrown in jail. He was a horrible uh, terrorist, really. How could he make such a statement? Because that old man had died, and he was now a new creation in Christ. So our conscience truly can be cleansed. Number four, we learn that through the precious blood of Jesus, we have access to God. That means we are invited into the throne room of heaven. 
We're supposed to come there. God wants you there. You don't have to back in. You don't have to disguise yourself so that he doesn't know it's really you. No, no, he knows you. He knows what he made you, and he wants you in his company. God wants you there. He wants, he wants you to come into the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need and to come boldly to him. Then last week we learned, number five, the fifth on the list, is that through the precious blood of Jesus we have been redeemed. Redemption or the buying back of us from the bondage to Satan and to the curse of the law, that was accomplished through the blood of Jesus Christ. It was a legal transaction. God views it as such, and it's a reality for us. So thank God for Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. We learned that that means we're redeemed from spiritual death, that separation, alienation, isolation from God. We're, we're redeemed from spiritual death. We're, we are redeemed from poverty. We are redeemed from sickness and disease. We are redeemed from relational disasters. We are redeemed from mental illnesses and bondages. Uh, you know, it's just amazing. Uh, we're redeemed from all of those things that are part of the curse. Just read it and just rejoice in what you're not supposed to have and what you're not supposed to put up with and rejoice in the blessings of Abraham that have come upon you through Jesus Christ. Now today... This is the last one on the list, and what's it going to be? Number six is that through the precious blood of Jesus, we now have a legal covenant of blood with God. This is really, really important. There are legalities involved. Technical things are involved, yes. It involves an ancient ritual, yes, but what it means to us today is that we have an unalterable, unchangeable, unbreakable agreement with God Almighty that we call the New Testament. Testament meaning will or covenant. All those words are interchangeable. The word covenant, as you see it in your Bible, means to cut. It means an incision where blood flows. Now that's interesting because that's probably not what somebody would think of in a normal, uh, or maybe I would say a modern definition. But when we think about it the way the Bible meant it to be, a, a blood covenant with God means that there was a covenant cut. There was an incision made. Blood flowed to bring into existence a legal binding agreement and this ancient biblical binding agreement never existed without two things the shedding of blood and a life laid down always was that some of you remember you've heard the names uh, Stanley and Livingston uh, you know uh, David Livingston was a missionary as well as an explorer and in his travels into the depths of the African continent. He made this statement after uh, being there and, and seeing so many different people over his ministry that he had never once seen a blood covenant violated. And when we think about that today, that just almost seems so foreign, doesn't it? Because the world is full of people who make promises they don't keep. There are many people who make promises without any intention of keeping the promise. Think politician. 
Not all of them, but some of them. Some of you maybe have known some people like that. So this kind of a uh, binding agreement just almost seems foreign to us. But what you and I need to understand is that since the fall of man, God has never maintained an ongoing relationship with a human being without a blood covenant. Never. Since the fall, that has never, ever happened. Any kind of ongoing or far-reaching relationship that God has had with men has always been on the basis of the shedding of blood. Now, in the ancient times, covenants were cut. Animals would be slain. <clears throat> of course, God taught us about the slaying of an animal. When man fell in the beginning, God was actually the one who offered their first sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And we know that every blood sacrifice of the Old Testament, and they were, are innumerable in, in their, their vastness of how many blood sacrifices would have been made, but every one of them in some way or another, always pointed to the cross, to the blood that would be shed at Calvary. When the blood of a perfect, sinless man, the God-man, the blood of God manifest in the flesh would be shed. It wasn't the blood of the Adamic line. It wasn't a fallen man. It was Jesus the Christ, God manifest in flesh. All those sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed to that one that would come. Because God can never maintain an ongoing relationship with a man who has experienced the fall unless there is some kind of shedding of blood to deal with the sin and all the issues that it brings. This kind of a covenant would be made between individuals. It would be made between families. You've got to think about ancient times, the tribalistic um, uh, uh, way of life that most people lived under. Families grew, they became into tribes of people, and there would be inter-tribal uh, or inter-family relationships made based on a lot of reasons. You know, in those days, people would uh, try to arrange marriages for financial security. There would be weaker nations or weaker tribes who would seek to carry the favor of those who were stronger and more powerful so that they could take advantage of their protection because what was understood in the ancient world is that if, if I'm in covenant with you and you're in covenant with me, then whatever you need, if I can supply it, I'm obligated to do so. And whatever I need, if you can supply it, you're now obligated to do so. And the fact that we shed blood to signify this covenant, and many times it would have been witnessed by people who would have been around, the fact that blood was shed was a symbolic way of saying, I will keep this covenant even to the point of death. If it costs me my life, I'll keep this covenant. Today, in the traditional marriage ceremonies that we have, that phrase, till death do us part is a carryover of that kind of a covenant relationship. That I pledge myself to you, I commit myself to you, no matter what comes and no matter what goes, I'm going to stay with you and I'm going to love you and I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to cherish you, I'm going to honor you until I die or you die. One or the other. That's how powerful this was. 
And, and it's really hard, I think, for, for ministers and teachers of the Bible to be able to express this in such a way that a 2022, almost 2023 congregation, especially people who did not grow up with people of this kind of integrity, how they can really appreciate how, how powerful this is to God. A blood covenant is a blood-sworn oath. It's the most solemn and binding agreement that can ever be made between individuals. It's an agreement for life. As I said, even if it takes my life to fulfill my part. And the basis of covenant is not power. The basis of covenant is not wealth. The basis of covenant is not title or authority. The basis of covenant is loyalty. Loyalty. Will you do what you say you'll do? That's the basis. Because a covenant is never any better than the honesty and the integrity of the people who are involved. A covenant is no better than the integrity and the honesty of the people who make the covenant. Well, what's good for us to know is that according to Titus chapter 1 and verse 2 and Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19, God cannot lie. So anybody in covenant with God never, never, never has to worry or give a second thought to the idea that he would not do what he said he would do. Aren't you glad about that? And you see, when you begin to realize these truths, it makes this New Testament a different book for you. Because you realize that when you read it, you're not just reading, quote, Scripture, although it is Scripture, but you're reading the provisions of your legal agreement with the Almighty God. Now, our covenant and the terms and conditions of it are described in the New Testament. And here's the thing that I want you to know. You know, if you don't get everything else I'm saying, please get this. The covenant that you and I have with God today is a covenant that originated and still stands by the loyalty and the validity between God the Father and God the Son. You and I didn't have enough good works we didn't have enough integrity. We didn't have enough loyalty. We didn't have enough good works to even come close to being on par to make a covenant with God. But Jesus did. You see, he didn't come just to be a baby. He didn't come just to make pretty Christmas cards. He didn't come just to give us a holiday, another reason to pig out, <laughs> take a couple extra days off of work. No, that's, that's not why he came. He came to fulfill all these things we've been talking about here for the last five weeks and today's the sixth. We, he came that we could be in a legal contract with Almighty God. The validity... And the constancy, the blessings, and the provisions of this covenant are absolute. They are as sure as God is. Because hanging on the cross, suspended between heaven and earth, Jesus, 
the second person of the Trinity, God manifest in flesh, shed his life's blood to ratify a covenant of blood with his Father God. The only way this covenant could ever be annulled, the only way this covenant could ever fail, the only way this covenant could ever go out of existence would be for either God the Father or God the Son to cease to exist or to, to begin to lie. Well, you know and I know that's never going to happen. Amen. A million years from now, you'll be able in the presence of Almighty God to worship Him for His unchanging, powerful word to you. And you and I will be in heaven not because we've been so good here. Not because we crossed all the T's, dotted all the I's, checked all the boxes. But we're going to be there because of what Jesus did. And he did a lot of wonderful things. But I'm so thankful that Jesus brought us in the covenant relationship with God. You see, the truth is because when you and I came into Christ. In other words, when we were born again. When we came into Christ, we came into all that he is, all that he has. We came into him. We are described, the church is described as the body of Christ. We have about 130 prepositional phrases in the New Testament that have these words, various uh, renditions of it. Of Christ, in Christ, by him, through him. For him. There are about 130 of those that reveal to us who we are, what we have, and what we can do in Christ Jesus. To be a Christian is to be in Christ. Have you ever eaten something and maybe you really looked forward to it? You know, you were looking forward to this particular dish, something special. Maybe you don't have it very often. And when you took the first bite, you realized something's missing. Or you may, may be like the lady one time that she was making macaroni salad. And please forgive me if you like to do this with your macaroni salad. I can't know why you would want to. But anyway, <laughs> forgive me if you, if you do. But by mistake, she loaded it up with oregano. It wasn't an Italian version. It was, you know, the southern stuff. Mac, mac, macaroni and mayonnaise and all of that. You know, so the wrong ingredient or the lack of something can really change the whole profile of a, of a dish, and, and it can be very disappointing. What you've got to know is that when it comes to who we are in Christ and what we have in Him, He checked all the boxes. He crossed all the T's. He dotted all the I's. Every ingredient that we need is here. This covenant is absolute. And there are... There is no legally binding agreement known to man that has more authority than the New Testament. There is no legal agreement or any uh, legal document known to man that is as unchanging and sure as your New Testament. No constitution of any nation, no law passed by any legislative body, no edict from any uh, royal personages ever has the same weight as the New Testament. When we come to the Word of God and we open it, 
Hopefully you did today. Hopefully you will tomorrow. You need to always understand, I'm reading my legal agreement with God. He's talking to me, and he's telling me what he's done for me. He's telling me what he will do for me. He's telling me what belongs to me. He's, he's encouraging me to believe him that his word comes to pass in my life. So being in Christ is coming into all that he has. As I say, no missing ingredients. So to be in Christ is to be in covenant. If Jesus is in covenant with his Father, then so am I. And so are you if you're a believer. Only because we're in relationship with Jesus Christ are we in covenant with the Almighty, the All-Powerful, an all-knowing God, but aren't you glad we are in Christ? So this New Testament that we have is a legally binding agreement that we have with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are a few things you need to do with this New Testament. These are important things. And they're going to be so simple and so basic that you maybe have a tendency just to skip over it and say, well, I already know that. But it's to the people who do what I'm getting ready to tell you that their life changes. The people who do this, that's who receive the supernatural answers to prayer and the miraculous provision that God makes through the blood of Jesus. So here's what you need to do with your New Testament. Are you ready? Simple list. Number one, learn it. Read it. Read it regularly. I would encourage you to read it over and over and over again. I'm not saying you have to do that in a week or three days or 30 days. I'm not telling you that. But you need to constantly be feeding on the Word of God. At some level, you need to be constantly reminded of who you are and what you have in Christ. Learn the New Testament. Number two, believe it. You see, believing is a choice. You say, how do I make a choice as to what I believe? When you choose what you hear. Everybody chooses what they believe. You need to make up your mind before you ever read another verse. If God says it, I believe it. It's forever settled. No argument, no debate, no second guessing. If he said it, it's so. So we learn it, we believe it. Number three, you need to meditate it. Now, I know meditation in the modern world uh, sometimes conjures up some weird ideas, you know. And since the days of all the hippies and all that and the drug culture and all the rest of that, you know, the word meditation has kind of gotten a bad rap. And there are those Eastern cults and mysticisms that have hijacked the whole concept of meditation. And many Christians just think, well, this is weirdo stuff. I don't want to go there. Meditation was not the devil's idea. Meditation was not some guru idea. Meditation is God's idea. As early as in the book of Joshua chapter 1, when Joshua took over from the reins of leadership of Moses, God gave him a key for his success. He said, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, or the word of God shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then you'll make your way prosperous, and then you'll have good success. One of the most important keys to your success from this day forward will be meditating the Word of God. What does that mean? Well, meditating the Word of God means to focus on it. We all know what that word means, focus on it. Now, this is not like 
systematic reading. This is not so many chapters or whatever a day. This is finding passages that you put yourself in that passage as you're sitting there thinking on it, pondering over it. Even to the point of muttering to yourself that verse or that phrase. Substituting your name where it's appropriate. See, meditation is the way that you make the scripture yours. It's not just brother so-and-so's. It's not just pastor so-and-so. It's yours. When you meditate the word, you put yourself in the scripture. And you put the scripture into you. Revelation knowledge comes as we meditate. And revelation knowledge is the basis for your faith. Because you can't believe past actual knowledge. And so with every increase in faith, there has to be an increase in revelation knowledge from the Word of God. Meditation on the Word, in the Word, is one of the keys to to getting that in your life. Then the next thing on the list, just speak the Word. Speak it. You don't have to quote King James English. You don't have to quote every single word. Get the gist, but quote the Word. Speak the Word. Start out, if, if you're not used to this, start out in your prayer life. If you have to, write some things down. Put them on a piece of paper and just go there before God and say, Lord, you said here in such and such and then tell him what he said. Now, it's not because he doesn't remember it, but it's because we need to hear it. And I do want him to know, I believe this. And so you begin to do that and you begin to declare the word of God. Confession of scripture is one of the most important faith things you'll ever do. And I've learned from my own experience, many years of being a pastor, it's one of the most difficult things to get people to do and do consistently. I don't know exactly why, but it just seems like a difficult thing for people to break through that barrier and every day of their life begin to have time when they are confessing what the Word of God says over their life. But this is one of the most important keys to your faith working that you'll ever use is the confession of the Word of God. Now, I take it from your silence, as they would say in the old-time church business meetings, that you are at peace and fellowship among yourselves, and you are in agreement. Amen. Can we hear a motion in a second? But this is really important. The great English evangelist of yesteryear went home to be with the Lord in 1947, Smith Wigglesworth. He, we quote him a lot in Pentecostal circles even to this day because he raised about 18 people from the dead. That's documented, that, that people know of. And, um, you know, I, I don't know about you, but that's 18. He got me beat by 18. And uh, people that, that have that kind of results, miraculous results. It's amazing. But he used, to, he used to ask people because Smith Wigglesworth was a plumber. He was uneducated. He was born about 1859, uh, something like that, in uh, northern England, Yorkshire. And he was a part of child labor in those days. There were no laws to protect him, so he never went to school. He couldn't read or write until he was about 50 years old. His wife taught him. And he lived to be 87. So well over half his life had passed. But people are still like me in pulpits talking about this man who died 75 years ago. Why? Because he just believed what God said. And one of the things he used to say was, he would ask people, because he only read the Bible. When he learned to read, that's all he would read. 
Some of you know of the, the minister, Dr. Lester Summerall. He's also with the Lord, but we got to meet him. He ministered for us in the church we pastored. Very interesting man, very powerful man. But he says when he was a young man before World War II had broken out and they made all the American civilians leave, that he would go and visit with Wigglesworth, who was by then an older man in his 80s. And he would go visit him often, and they would fellowship and pray together, and it, it changed Summerall's life. He said the first day he showed up, he'd been in Britain for a while, so he just kind of conformed to the culture. So he stood there with his little bowler hat. Anybody know what a bowler hat is? Those little black hats. And he had his umbrella. You know, in those days, no English gentleman would be out without an umbrella. And he had his newspaper rolled up under his arm. Come up and knocked on his door in Bradford, England. And Wigglesworth came to the door, greeted him, and he said, what's that? He said, what's the newspaper? He said, throw it away. He said, I don't allow that stuff in my house. This was right before the war broke out. He said, Hitler and Mussolini will be dead soon enough. Don't bring that, those lies in my house. He wouldn't. I mean, I know that's extreme. I'm not saying you have to do that. But again, how many people have you raised from the dead? But he would have this saying. I thought you might be interested in some of those little side issues. But he would have this saying. He would ask people. Like I said, he was not a, a well-educated man. But he was a powerfully spiritual man. And he would ask people, are you Sething yet? Are you Sething yet? Well, where did he get that? From Mark eleven twenty-three, Whosoever shall say and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Wigglesworth in his northern English brogue would say, Sething. Are you Sething yet? What he meant was, are you saying anything from the word? Are you talking scripture? Are you saying what you believe? Are you confessing the word of God? Because you see, he knew, just like I hope you know, and I know, that that's the way faith is released. If you're not willing to do that, then there's a whole aspect of the faith life you're never going to enjoy. I know we want God to just do it anyway. We want somebody else to pray it for us. We want to get in somebody's prayer line and that's going to make it all happen. And we believe in praying for people and we believe in prayer lines. There's a place and a time for all of that. But my brother and sister, so many situations in life will not be solved that way. Only you're going to have to use your faith. So your, your, co your covenant relationship with God, you need to learn it, believe it, meditate it, speak it. And finally, you just need to do it. Don't ever, 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 ever say, well, I'm going to pray about doing something that the Word tells you to do. No, you don't pray about doing that. You just do it. Amen. You don't pray about if I'm going to forgive. You just forgive. You don't pray, if I, should I, Lord, help me to tithe. No, you just tithe. Lord, help me to be a giver. No, you just give. Lord, help me to love my husband. You just love your husband. Lord, help me to love my wife. You just love your wife. You know, you just do what the Word says. And then what it says and what it promises will come to pass in your life. The precious blood of Jesus brought us this covenant that is so powerful that it will change your life forever. So let's learn it. Let's believe it. Let's meditate in it. Let's speak it. And then let's do it. Amen? Now today... As we close and our musicians will come.